With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, here's the thing. We get a lot of emails now, and... Uh, a lot of interesting thoughts, and I think if people will take the time to write in, I should take the time to answer them, or at least to put them out there for other people to listen to, and listen to the views of snooker fans. I'm going to say this is now the leading forum for snooker fans to put their points across in the in the audio world. <laughs> Not much of a claim, but anyway, I'm going to make it. Um, so anyway, we're going to go through them. And uh, But first, some very good news this week. Another ranking event has been announced, uh, the Xi'an... Uh, Grand Prix a, a tournament in China, the Shangzi province, Shangzi province, uh, where the Terracotta Warriors are, um, and that will be um, it's a multi-year deal, um, starting later this year, so next season. So that'll be four ranking events in China next season, plus the Shanghai Masters. So we're back up really to the level we were at before COVID, which is fantastic, fantastic news. Um, just shows couple of things, really. Firstly, the enthusiasm that remains in China. And when, and when all those players got banned, you know, I did wonder if they might turn against snooker. But actually, not a bit of it. Uh, they're pressing on, they're ploughing on with more investment. And it seems that what's worked really well, and this is the classic Barry Hearn in a way, and, 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 and that sort of spirit that he's engendered at Matchroom, they're competing against each other now, these cities. They see it as a way of putting some of these Chinese cities on the map. And, and it's interesting in the press release... There was a lot of talk about, for example, the Terracotta Warriors, about the area, the historic cultural nature of the area. It's interesting, the first prize is 177,000, which is great, but that's never been a figure, really. But, of course, the reason for that is that the International Championship is 175,000, so they want it to be bigger. So that means the other tournaments will go away, and they'll say, we want the biggest tournament in China, and that will raise the overall prize fund. Hopefully not just, obviously, the winner's check, but lower down through the ranks as well, in terms of prize money. So it's great news. Um, and, uh, yeah, another big tournament. And the calendar for next season, I'm told, will be re- released pretty imminently. They're waiting on details of another event. And when they are kind of sorted out, then it will all be out. I mean, actually, quite a lot of the dates are already released, um, if you piece it together, because the various tickets have gone on sale for quite a few tournaments. So you can actually, if you want to take some time, you can work out what a lot of the calendar is already. 
Um, but it's welcome to have another tournament. And uh, one thing I will say, though, and this is not a negative at all, it's just really a thought about practicalities. I do wonder now, do we need to be taking so many players to these Chinese events? Now, I know we're a world sport, but the fact is most people are still travelling from the UK to these events. Do we need to take 64? Because it, A, it's a lot of travel and a lot of logistics. B, it's a lot of expense for the players. Most of them, obviously half of them, will turn up there and lose in the first round and come home again. Um, and in a multi-table, eight-table setup, most of them won't be re-watched by anybody because that's the case with multi-table setups. They'll only watch the main matches. So is this the moment if we're going to be having more events and we want more and it's good that we've we've got them? Um, by the way, the second point I was going to make was the... the said about the enthusiasm in China. Obviously, the, the strong uh, bond there is now between the promoters in China and World Snooker Tour and the work that's been done. I know Jason Ferguson does a lot of travelling there. You know, it's all work that we haven't seen behind the scenes that's got this event on. So, again, credit where it's due. But, yeah, what I was saying about the format is, you know, a, a lot of players will go out there and, and be coming back pretty quickly. Is this the moment, if there's going to be more international events, to start looking at the ranking system maybe going back to a tiered system instead of this flat draw. And therefore, you could take the top 16, which is good from a marketing perspective, have qualifying in the UK, 16 qualifiers come through. They're guaranteed good money to go, so they're not out of pocket. But it doesn't mean everybody's got to go, or not everybody, but half the tour's got to go, and then sort of come back two days later. I do wonder if that's worth looking at now, because if there's going to be more travelling, and you know it's heavily trailed, there's going to be a ranking event in Saudi Arabia as well, is it now the time to actually say... Let's go back to that system, which could potentially benefit everybody in the long run. And, of course, the tiered system um, would mean that you don't, if you're a new professional, for example, uh, Bushka Reves, who's going to be on the tour from Hungary next season, I'm sure it'd be very exciting to play Ronnie O'Sullivan round one of a tournament, but he'll probably get beat, won't he? <laughs> He'd be better off for his career starting out against players who are nearer his standard, nearer his level. Um, so... I know that there are players from the WPBSA Players Board who are looking at this and talking about it. Obviously, it's going to be a World Snooker Tour decision, ultimately, and the, and the ranking system and the money list and all that comes into it and would have to change. But I think this could be the moment now to look at this, um, possibly as a way of making these events even better. But anyway, the bottom line is it's good to have them on. Um, and, yeah, uh, you know, I, I was talking to a player this week and he was saying, great, looking forward to it. But he did make the point, and it's a fair one. At the moment, the tour is basically the UK and China with a couple of events in Germany. So I guess the next challenge is to make the circuit even more international, and that's something that Steve Dawson spoke about, the World Snooker Tour chairman, in that YouTube interview he did with Stephen Hendry. He actually said, that's one of our aims, which is good. Um, and that's why you know people who are against the Saudi Arabian tournament, well, it's fine if you have moral objections, but the fact is that's a massive market in the Middle East. You know, you can't turn around and say, well, we've got to go to more places. Oh, but we can't go there. Uh, by the way, <laughs> I imagine there will be no discussion of human rights in China at all. That's not that's not fashionable. So we won't hear about that. Um, but anyway, bottom line is it's good news. And uh, yeah, another tournament. And it's going to be a busy season next season. and be up to pre-COVID levels. Um, and, you know, as I say, it looks like there'll be possibly another ranking event to be announced. Now, of course, uh, recently Judd Trump won the German Masters and John has written in with a very direct question, which I, a few people, I think, have been sort of considering. He says, one quick question to round off the weekend. Who would you say is the current player of the season? I'm guessing the casual BBC snooker fan would say, Ronnie, I'd have to go with Judd following his German Masters win. Who would you choose? Well, of course, this is a bit like um, 
a sort of referendum, isn't it, where you'll be made to choose something. You don't have to choose either. You can just admire them both, and I do. But you've asked me, John, I would say Ronnie, actually. I think the reason being he's played in fewer tournaments, but he's still won four of them. He's only lost three matches. In fact, he's only lost to two players, <laughs> Shang Ander and Lou Hyacin. Um So he's only lost three matches all season, and he has won the UK Championship of the Masters, which are recognised as hugely historic, significant, prestigious events. And he did so extending his own record in them to eight wins in each. So that probably tips the balance for now. I know Judd Trump's pulled out the Welsh Open, um, so we won't be winning that. Ronnie, we don't know whether he's playing in that yet. Um, but yeah, so I would say at the moment, Ronnie, but you know, the season's not over, is it? And we'll see the World Championship, World Championship is going to play its part. Uh, at the moment, they're seeded to meet in the semis. It kind of never works out that way, though, does it? You know, 1982, as we digress once again, um, there was six finals that season between Steve Davis and Terry Griffiths. Now, there weren't many, you know, there would only been about eight or nine events. They played in pretty much every final, and they're in opposite halves at the Crucible, widely tipped to, to play in the final. What happened? Steve got beat by Tony Knowles, and Terry Griffiths lost to Willie Thorne in the first round. So they both went out first round, Alex Higgins, of course, beat Ray Red in the final. Um, so it doesn't always work out like that, but we kind of hope it does, that we? We'd like to see, because in a way, for Trump, this would, this would settle a few of these... What I would say nonsense debates about his status. I think he's a great player, and I've said that many times. I said it again on the last podcast. But he's never beaten O'Sullivan at the Crucible. Um, they've only played there, I think, twice, to be fair, <laughs> against each other. But one was in a final. If he did, if they did play in the semis and he beat him and went on to win the world title, nobody could question that. You know, he'd be a multiple world champion having beaten O'Sullivan. That's all to come. Who knows what could happen? Well, we do know because I had that dream. <laughs> I had that dream of John Higgins and Sean Murphy twice, remember? So um, we sort of do know. Anyway, so that's uh, thank you, that, John, for that. Uh, now, Philip Zhao. Uh, oh, yes. Well, he, he mentions the dream here. He says, great profit, Dave. I was beaming with joy listening to your infectiously enthusiastic last podcast sharing your snooker dream. But as I watch Judd Trump defeat Xi Jinping in a dominant display, I'm surprised your prophecy of the 2024 World Championship final included neither Judd nor Ronnie. Well, I can only, uh, Philip, I can only go with what the dream tells me. You know, I can't control it. I'm not, it's not lucid dreaming. Uh, he says, I'm surprised, uh, I, I can't imagine anyone else lifting the trophy at the Crucible this year. The two of them have shared more than half of all the titles this season. Well, I go back again, Philip, to what I said about Stephen Terry in 1982. Uh, Depending on the rankings change, we might have a Titanic semi-final, maybe even a final between them. I don't think there'll be a final. I think, well, it's not impossible, I think, that Trump could end up three if Mark Allen started winning several tournaments. It's not impossible, actually. It's worth, although if he did end up three, let me think about this. Hang on. If he ended up three, no, he'd be seeded four, wouldn't he? Because Luca's defending champion. So it's, you're right. They could actually play in the final, thinking about it. Um, where are we? Oh, yes. Uh, can't wait until April. I'd love to see Judd become a multiple world champion. Can someone get Bet Victor to sponsor it, please? Well, yes, of course, he's, uh, he has, uh, won all those events. Now then, he said, Philip says here, we probably don't, you probably don't want to read this part out on the podcast since it's very long. I think we've established by now, Philip, we'll take anything. And it's quite interesting this because it's about the WST website, which I did ask for opinions on. And Philip says, I hope you can relay some of this to World Snooker Tour as they have ignored mine and others' attempts at providing feedback. <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? He says, I quite like the updated looks, but there are significant problems with the basic functionality of the website. Number one. Okay, so these are very specific points that Philip, who, you know, you can tell he's an expert in this, has gone through. 
Number one, the live scores are sometimes incorrect. For example, only showing three frames when a match is already finished. It's much better than the old one, but still not perfect. It also incorrectly highlights Chinese players' names. For example, showing Si Jiawei with, with Jiawei as his family name, which is incorrect. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it, it is, you know, it's quite well known in China. It's, it's the other way around, isn't it? To what we're used to in, in, in the West. Number two, I sometimes contribute to editing snooker-related articles on Wikipedia. There are only a handful of active editors, and this one has caused massive headaches for us. Citing references is crucial on Wikipedia, and World Snooker Tour is the most important source of information. However, they've changed the URL to all of the old articles with the with the update and broke all of our references linking to them. A simple redirect on their part could easily fix this problem. Number three, the change in URL also broke Google's indexing. It's now near impossible to find older WST articles on Google. You can search for Trump 2023 Masters, for example, and nothing from World Snooker Tour will show up, though the article still exists. I mean, I'm not an expert in any of this, but I, it sounds like um, I know there's a new a new company um, designed the website. It sounds like the sort of the transition has, has uh, sort of left the old stuff sort of well in the ether somewhere. Um, uh, people with more knowledge of this would know how to get it back, I guess. But uh, I think it's important to to mention that actually because you know this is the history of the game, and you know it'd be nice to have all that archived for people to look back on. So hopefully it's still recoverable somewhere. And number four, a lot of information such as tournament draw, seeding list, player rankings, etc., are displayed on the same pages that update dynamically. It looks nice, but historical information is lost. It'd be nice if they could post, for example, player rankings after each tournament on separate archival pages. They already have a lot of match stats in the live scoring. It'd also be nice to collect them in a central location, total centuries and highest break in each tournament, etc. I think it's fair to say that most people prefer third-party sources such as snooker.org, QTracker or Wikipedia over the official WST website. If I'm Steve Dawson, I'd be embarrassed. I hope they continue to improve it and incorporate feedback from fans. Thank you for bringing us the podcast and great commentary on Eurosport. Keep up the good work. Well, I think that's constructive criticism. Thank you for that. And hopefully, you know, they will take some of it on board. I think it's fair to say that the new website's only been, been up for a month now. So, you know, it's still sort of bedding in. But I, I do agree that sort of archive stuff is important, actually. It's important with the history of the game that that stuff is still accessible. And from what you're saying, it isn't. So hopefully... You know, something can be something can be done. <laughs> that's always uh, that's always the cry in these things. Now, of course, the big issue which we're ducking, but I need to address. I, I made the statement. There was a discussion last week about Hattie Jakes um, in the film Carry On at Your Convenience regarding a budgie. If, I won't go into it now, but you can listen to the last episode. But anyway, I made a very bold statement, and, and I stand by it that the best Carry On film is Carry On Cleo. Paul Prescott having none of it. No preamble, he's just written, literally his email just says, carry on screaming. Well, thank you, Paul, but uh, the one thing I would say about that, and, and this is a snooker podcast, I know, but, you know, we, we've gone down the rabbit hole here. Carry on screaming is a very funny uh, pastiche of Hammer Horror films, but Sid James isn't in it, right? Now, can you really have uh, the best carry on film without Sid James? Or indeed, Kenneth Williams, he is in it, but Sid James is not. They're the two mainstays, really, of that, that series. So I think it gets marked down for that reason. Whereas they're both in Carry On Cleo. <laughs> Sid James plays Mark Antony, and uh, Kenneth Williams famously plays Julius Caesar. There's a great line in Carry On Cleo. He's, he's sitting on these laurel leaves, uh, Kenneth Williams, as Caesar. And he says, <laughs> he says, oh, now, where are my laurels? Oh, I was resting on them. <laughs> now, you know, that's a good joke. And speaking of which, and this is seamless, 
someone wrote in last week with some jokes uh, about uh, well, a cigarette player's name. Lee Wall it was. And uh, Liam McMullen has picked up the baton, if that's the word, and run with it. No one asked him to, but he's done so. He says, I'm so sorry, I didn't feel we should carry this on, but I'm too much of a sucker for wordplay and puns of any kind. So these are three players, cigarette-based players, OK? Yeah. P- people will mock mock at this, but Mark Watson might be writing these down, that's all I'm saying. Um, right, he, he, these are the three players based on cigarettes. OK, Sanderson, Lambert and Butler. Uh, Marlborough, Mar- Marlborough Rod Lawler. It's hard to say that. And Sam Belief Craigie. Well, I've read them out. <laughs> what other people think of that is up to them. Uh, Andrew Job. He says, uh, now Dave Farrell wrote in a few, a few weeks ago. Well, it's explained in the email. He says, as an American snooker, Andrew mentioned smoking in this. This is why his email is next. He says, it's all planned. This is all put together very professionally. He says, as an American snooker fan whose college degree is in history, I feel uniquely qualified to add to Dave Farrell's note a few episodes ago about snooker players who share surnames with US presidents and other significant American historical figures. Near as I can tell, he's identified every significant player who shares a surname with the US president, but he did miss a few of the significant figures in American history. OK, so here we go. Joe Fred Stephen Mark Davis and Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Stephen Lee and Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Robin Hull and Secretary of State Cordell Hull, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in founding the United Nations. Joe Perry and Matthew C. Perry, the naval officer who led the expedition that established diplomatic relations between the US and Japan. Now, of course, we could spend our time, you know, debating the, the, the various, you know, very hot button issues in the game. But the fact is, we're reading out names of people <laughs> who share the same surname as historical figures. And I think that's fine. I, I think that's perfectly, perfectly fine way to... A lot of podcasts, a lot of arguing uh, podcasts and, you know, political views and so on. We're just reading out names. OK, Andrew continues. Number two. Also, as an American, I was extremely disappointed that there seemed to be no official way of watching the German Masters. Matchroom.live was listed as the official broadcaster on the WST website, but they never actually showed the tournament, leaving me no choice but to resort to finding alternative sources of dubious legality. I'm sorry to hear that, uh, Andrew, and um, yeah, I mean, we have heard not always great feedback from people uh, around the world about that service, so um, hopefully that can be looked at. Uh, Number three... From Andrew, the recent discussions about smoking, so here we go, at, at tournaments made me wonder, when were players banned from smoking on the match floor? Watching old highlights and matches on YouTube, it seems that smoking was commonplace throughout the 1980s, but it seems once the 1990s came around, no one smoked in the arena. Was that due to a directive from the governing body, individual tournaments, local governments or something else? I'm also curious as to how many players still smoke. While smoking is quite clearly unhealthy, its negative effects would not seem to particularly diminish one snooker skills, so I imagine that there are more smokers in snooker than there are in more aerobatically uh, demanding sports, such as aerobically demanding sports, I should say, such as football, basketball or soccer. Well, on the smoking, I think that was a BBC thing or a TV thing in general. I think it was just decided that um, if you're showing a sporting event, seeing people smoking, smoking became, started to become unfashionable, I would say, kind of late 80s, 90s, like you say, and I think that was a television thing, but I'd imagine broadcasting law it would have it would have come in anyway um it was not that players so much was commonplace they were kind of encouraged because as i said last week it was because 
you know, the sponsors wanted their product to be seen, obviously. It was, uh, different times, different times. In terms of players smoking, well, in, in the, in the documentary, The Edge of Everything, Ronnie O'Sullivan is seen smoking in his dressing room at the Crucible. Obviously he can't smoke indoors, so he's sort of hanging out the window, smoking, as it were, outside. But, I mean, that's, that's just a fact that was on that documentary. Um, he's often talked about he's sort of keeping healthy, but that's <laughs> that's not quite uh, true in that case, is it? But um, anyway, people can do what they like, as far well as I'm concerned. Uh, and number four, to end on a lighter note, here are a few snooker jokes. <laughs> okay, and these are quite involved. I've got to be honest, but anyway, Andrew's written these in, so here we go. Which world champion can make you a nice suit? Dennis Taylor. Yeah, that's quite a good one. Uh, which world champion? This is now this is quite a convoluted. You have to concentrate here, okay? Which world champion singed a Norse god at the edge of a precipice? Cliff Thorburn. There's a lot, lot going on there. A lot of work being done by all the elements there. I'll read it again. Which world champion singed a Norse god at the edge of a precipice? Cliff Thorburn. And finally from Andrew. And this is, now this is niche. This is the, probably the nichest sentence we've ever read out, actually. And that's saying something. Why does Dan Quayle not like to see the magician pop the ball worth four points? Because it's a Murphy Brown. Now, it, it, very kindly you've, you've sent a link because I had a vague memory of this that it was a sitcom, um, in America and Dan Quayle, who was a sort of nitwit vice president to, to, to the first George Bush, um, claimed that it was, you know, like a lot of these lunatic politicians claiming it was destroying society. It was just a sitcom. Um, I think I think the, she had a she had a child. She was a single mother. I mean, <laughs> you know, different again, different times. But uh, anyway, Dan Quayle, uh, be no quails at the Crucible because he didn't have a Joe Swale. That could be the next one. Actually, here's a, here's a challenge for anybody out there. Okay, Play, players who played at the Crucible whose surnames rhyme with famous people. <laughs> I'm not sure what we'll get with that, but if you've got anything on it, I, I've given you. Joe Swale and Dan Quayle. So anything on that, we'll take. Um, these podcasts, you know, they don't fill themselves, although <laughs> some of the recent ones, you, you know, you might disagree with that. Now, Neil Folds has written in. <laughs> um, myself and Neil, we only actually communicate either through commentary or emails to podcasts, and Neil's written in. Now, you may remember his, one of his last emails was his idea for the doubles event, Um I won't go into it now. It's quite convoluted, but he he, he had an idea for a, a doubles event. It wasn't it wasn't that well received. I mean, words like crackpot were used, which I thought was unfair personally. But anyway, uh, but he's written it again, and uh, this is what he said. He says, as commentators, I don't think a tournament goes by without someone making suggestions to us on how the balls can be replaced more effectively than the current methods following a miss. Some of these suggestions are good, others not quite as good. While watching the qualifiers on Discovery Plus and seeing replacements of not only the cue ball but other balls, you can rewind the action 10 seconds, very easy to do, to the point before the offending shot has been played. In qualifiers, the referees are usually flying solo, no markers to assist, so they have little chance of knowing where everything was placed, especially where the colours have also been moved in making the foul. Surely the solution is simple. If me, the viewer watching at home, can see where the balls were originally placed, why should the match official be kept in the dark and not have that same facility. A referee's job is difficult enough, but surely an iPad close at hand with real-time Discovery Plus match footage would assist greatly. As like yourself, I commentate for Eurosport Discovery, uh, but this email isn't a shameless plug for the excellent Discovery Plus app. 
It's more an attempt to offer common sense as opposed to seeing referees attempting to guess sometimes very often difficult replacements of the balls. The referee could have a white glove with a top inch cut off one of his fingers, one of one of the fingers, to operate the minus 10 or 20 seconds function on an iPad and they will be able to see where the balls actually were. This seems like perfect sense to me and providing the venue Wi-Fi is working, then this would make a difficult job easier with various other methods that have been suggested. Well, thank you, Neil. And um, yes, we're not, as, as Neil says, we're not here to advertise Discovery Plus, but it is an excellent service. It, it genuinely is. I've said that before. Um, I told the story. I, after after Ronnie won the uh, seventh world title, I got in the lift in the hotel. The bloke said to me, he said, I've spent 40 quid on Discovery Plus, best 40 quid I've ever spent. There we go. So, um, and we don't take a cut. But anyway, on to the substantive point Neil makes. I think, I mean, that seems like, well, put it this way, it would be much better than what's happening now, wouldn't it? I mean, clearly, if the footage is available, like you say, if I'm watching the qualifying at home, I can do that. I can scroll back <laughs> to where the position was. So if I can do it, why shouldn't the officials on site do it? You wouldn't need another official. Like you say, you have an iPad. It might take a bit of time. It's it's not just a case of going back 20 seconds. You'd have to, you know, turn the iPad on, for example, or something like that, you know. It would take a bit of time. But it's in everyone's interests to get the balls back where they should be. And it seems that we haven't quite moved along with the times in terms of technology. It seems odd when so many people watching at home have a better idea where the balls were than the officials who are doing a good job and their best job, but are not being helped by technology. So, I mean, this this idea, I've heard this actually floated before, give give them the technology at the events. If every match now is being recorded, and they all are, on streaming, then surely that's the answer, isn't it? Um, I, I suppose what, what I would say is you wouldn't need it on it, it, like if in every situation. You only need it, I think, in complicated situations. I don't think you'd want to see that them reaching for the iPad in every single replacement because that would take up time. Um, I think some situations are better actually worked out by the players because certainly the the player playing the shot would have a better idea certainly where the cue ball was. But if several balls have moved then why not try something like that? Because, well, what, I suppose that's the question, really. What's the reason not to do it? Um, so, thank you. And, and talking of Eurosport, as commentators, Lee Wall says, it was nice to clear up the fact that no Smiths have played at the Crucible. Now, this was, again, Dave Farrer. Uh, he cleared that up last time. He said, it, but it did remind me of your erstwhile Eurosport colleague, Mike Smith. He was the Master of Ceremonies there in 1984. Perhaps the previous year's MC had been too lax in allowing mystery tables to encroach upon the floor. I was wondering if you had any fond memories you would like to share of working with Mike, who was a very versatile commentator. Such were the demands of Eurosport back in the day. <coughs> Thank you, Lee. Well, first thing to say, Mike passed away a few years ago. Um, he was there quite early on as a general Eurosport commentator. Cycling was his, was his game, really. He was a very keen cyclist himself. Um, and when... Eurosport first started showing snooker because, as you say, he'd been the MC at the Crucible that year, 1984, and he'd done sort of exhibitions and so on. So he had some in in the sport. He he got the the job, and um, he did that for a number of years. And he's actually the reason I started at Eurosport because he went off to the Asian Games, I think, to do cycling in 2006, and it, it clashed with the UK Championship. So they needed someone to fill in for him. Um, and as far as I was aware, that's all I was doing. That's my first commentary, but, you know, I've been doing it ever since. The team 
expanded after that. I think, you know, mainly because there was so much of it and, you know, they only had two commentators and they needed more people. Um, we were different sort of generations, really, different ages. Um, I was sort of coming into it. He was really towards the end of his career. So I wouldn't say I spent a lot of time with him, really. I never commentated with him. Um, it was always he'd be with the player and I'd be with the player. And we would alternate, so there's some tournaments I kind of never saw him. So we didn't spend a lot of time together. What I would say about Mike was he was old school. Um, you know, he was very, there was, there's a certain sort of, um, training that those old school, uh, sort of broadcasters have. You know, a lot of it is to do with actually punctuality. Uh, there used to be a rule at Eurosport. You had to be in the office two hours before your program started. So if, if the pro, if the match started at one, you had to be there at 11. And Mike would walk in at 11. He wouldn't walk in at 5 past or 10 past. He would walk in at 11. That was the old school way he used to operate. Um, he was quite set in his ways, the way he did things. Um, but one thing that he could definitely do is hold the program together. His snooker knowledge maybe was not as strong as some people, but he could hold a program together. And, and in, in those days at Eurosport, it's got a lot better now. We have studios and we have very professional production. But in the early days... Because a lot of it was controlled from Paris, and, and Stuka is not in any way a French sport, so they didn't really understand it. I mean, they used to go to ad breaks um, when there was a respotted black because they thought the frame was over. So the black went in, oh, frame's over, advert. Well, no, you know, it comes back on. But that was because they weren't. It wasn't a sport they were that knowledgeable about then. So, but he could hold it all together, and there's a lot goes on still now, but certainly back then that the viewers would not be aware of in the background that you have to sort of manage, and he could certainly do that. There was never any chance of dead air or him not filling in or covering it or, or, or being professional actually in that way. Um, so he, he, you know, he did, he put in a shift, you know, you got to say that he put in a shift and, um, I think he liked it. I think he liked the game. Um, but you know, he, he, when I started, he was sort of getting on in years and, and, you know, eventually retired. And, um, as I say, sadly passed away. He was a very fit man. He used to bring his bike down with him and cycle. You know, many hours, you know, most days actually before, before commentating, which was admirable. He's fitter than all the younger people there. Um, but anyway, hopefully that, that answers your question. Nick Smith is next. Uh, he says a few things I'd like to mention relating to subjects you talked about on the last couple of podcasts. You mentioned the infamous Alain Robody Q destruction incident. And this is when Alan had his, uh, Cue broken up. He says, Alain talks about this at some length on this episode of the now discontinued, I think, Ultimate 8 Ball podcast. So, um, Nick sent a link to this. So the episode is two hours long and includes some amusing tales of the O'Sullivan left-hander incident and of when he lived for a little while with Stephen Hendry here in Scotland. Strangely, Hendry didn't mention this on the Q-tip show when Robert Hugh came up in conversation. Whether he'd genuinely forgotten or just wanted to is an interesting question on its own, or maybe interesting is pushing it. Anyway, I thought Elaine came across as a decent and surprisingly funny guy, given how lugubrious his demeanour seemed in his playing days. Definitely worth a listen. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the Canadian players are all kind of really good talkers and kind of great guys, actually, all of them, it seems. And um, anyway, people can search for that. It's the Ultimate 8 Ball podcast, Elaine Robert on that. Uh, number two from Nick, a minor quibble about the WST website. When you look at the live scores, the various banners take up almost half of the screen space. So there's only room for three live scores. It's not an accessibility thing because you can increase the size but not decrease them. This isn't likely to lead to questions in the house, but it's a bit annoying. And number three from Nick, 
much as I enjoyed the German Masters and much as all the commentators and players seemed to love the setup, it seemed to me like the spectators were miles, I should probably say kilometres, away from the main table. Was that the case? Or was it more to do with the wide-angled lenses used for some of the auditorium shots? Meanwhile, thanks for all your efforts on the podcast and commiserations on being beaten to the award by those two Johnny-come-latelys, Messrs Murphy and Seymour. I call foul play. Well, you know, they're the vicissitudes of uh, the... Uh, the award season, I suppose. Um, but anyway, uh, no, the, the Tempodrome, I think I've, I've been there and, and it's true the audience are not, it's not the crucible where they're on top of the players, but they're closer actually than it kind of looks on TV. Obviously, if you sat at the back, you sat at the back, you know, you're quite a long way away. But of course, in the early rounds, the tables are very close to the, to the audience because the outside tables, the main table obviously is in the middle. But they're not quite as far away as, as, as you... I've heard people say this. You're not as far away as all that, really. You can see what's going on. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. Um, Lars Johansson. Of course, I met Lars in uh, York. Came over from Canada. And he says, I'm currently in Sweden. and watching Snook on the TV at my dad's place. Of course, the commentator is Kim Hartman, as always. I haven't listened to him for many, many years as I live in Canada full-time since 2007. Over there, I always listen to the UK commentators on the streams provided. One thing I've noticed is the vastly different styles of commentating comparing Hartman to what I've otherwise gotten used to. He has this way of not talking much in periods, even minutes without a single word. At first, I was frustrated, felt like I wanted the chatter, info and shot analysis that I'm, getting, that I'm used to getting from the commentator and expert. But as I settled in, I got used to his style. I even got to enjoy it. I see great value in both styles. I can understand that some people like one style, others the other style. It comes down to preference, of course. So here's my question. As you got into commentating, was it always a natural choice to go with the intention to comment using the style you and most of the UK commentators seem to operate under, based on my experience? Or was it something that's been learned, tuned over time? What do you think about the style that Hartman has? And do you know how other nations' snooker commentators operate? Is there a more is there a more common is it more common with a chatty style or the quiet approach? This is not an email meant to criticise you or anyone else's commentating style. I'm just curious. Do you think that sometimes maybe more commentators some commentators talk too much? Is there maybe room for more silence to allow the viewers to interpret what they see themselves? Thoughts? Thanks, Lars. Well, I mean, there's a number of things here. The first is I've ne- I haven't heard Kim Hartman commentate because I don't live in Sweden, so I can't say anything about how he does it. It's true that. A number of the guys across Europe commentate on their own, which is different, obviously. You can't, um, you know, allow someone else to, to pick up the slack or, or say things. You have to do it all yourself. But in general, um, I think snooker's interesting because there are some sports where you do have to talk all the time. Football is one, really. You know, there's action all the time. Rugby, those fast-moving sports, you know, you have to be speaking. Snooker, I think, it's dictated to by the sort of frame it is. Now, a frame where someone's making, just gets in, long red, makes a 75 or something, wins the frame in eight or nine minutes. Quite often in a frame like that, there's not, you don't need to say that much because it's apparent what's happening. You know, it's apparent what's happening. There's not need for much shot analysis. You can add a bit of context and information. But that sort of frame, maybe you don't need to speak so much. But there are other frames, highly tactical, or certainly if you get down to the colours and it's, you know, it becomes about tactics and it becomes about shot choice, then there tends to be more need to speak. So I think it's dictated to by um, the type of frame. I think part of the skill of broadcasting is... 
I'm aware of some of the length of some of these podcasts, but part of it is actually trying to crystallise what you have to say in as few words as possible. And that's what the great masters of sports commentary have done. Richie Beto in cricket, Clive Everton, of course, in snooker, and several others managed to say a lot without actually using a lot of words. And that comes down to vocabulary and, and well, also intelligence, if you want to put it that way. But but it, but the, just the ability to deal with language, I suppose, um, and use words in that way. So, therefore, there's not a need, then, to speak too much. I think in a lot of sports now, people overstate the case. So they'll tell you something, and then they'll tell you the same thing two or three times like you haven't understood it. And I do think as well, and I think cricket has gone this way, and darts has gone this way. A lot of commentary has become conversation between the commentators. It's almost like sometimes the action's in the background. Two people are having a conversation. And sometimes they have to sort of abruptly change what they're saying because, you know, something's happening. Um, and, and in the case of darts, it's quite fast moving. So, you know, that, that, that kind of seems to happen a lot. Cricket, I've seen wickets taken while people have been chatting about stuff. Um, what I've noticed, and it's only re- recently I've noticed is I tend personally, I've noticed I tend not to necessarily talk to the other commentator specifically because to my mind, I'm talking to the audience. Um, we're not there to have a conversation between ourselves. We can do that off air. Sometimes you want to ask the other commentator something, but in general, I'm directing my views to the audience. And in that way, hopefully, you don't talk as much because you don't get dragged into just chatting for the sake of it. Um, there's no, I don't have an issue with people in quieter moments having a conversation about something and bringing up things hopefully the audience will enjoy. But, your role is to hopefully try and inform the viewer in some way is what's happening and you don't have to be do, con- talking constantly to do that I don't think um, everyone has their own way of doing it of course everyone has different styles and in a way that's the good thing about it there are different styles um, but anyway hopefully that in some way answers your question Phil Spivey writes apologies in advance for the length of this email no apologies needed uh, Phil what a great week the German Masters was. Loved your Tom Jones pun during the Trump Craigie semi final. Well, yeah, I mean, I won't repeat it here, but, you know, it had a small but appreciative audience, much like this podcast. Anyway, uh, Phil continues that Berlin crowd is quite something. Wonderful atmosphere, as well as all the things you mentioned about the crowd. I'm always struck by how hardly anyone leaves their seats between frames. Very different to events in the UK. I agree, it seems. Appropriate to do something to further elevate this event, the prize money, as you said, would be a good place to start. Also, I wondered if this could be a tiered event, but done slightly differently to the UK's and world's format. What I'd like to see is the top 32 to be seeded through to the last 64 stage in Berlin, with the players ranked 33 to 1 to 8 qualifying to join them. This could be done by players ranked 65 to 1 to 8 playing the first qualifying round, and the 32 winners playing those ranked 33 to 64 for a place in the main tournament. These qualifiers could then be drawn at random against the top 32, who would be placed in the draw according to their seeding. It's not the worst idea by any means, and um, again, it sort of goes into what I was saying earlier. Maybe this is the point. If we're going to have more tournaments around the world and there's more expense and so on, maybe this is the point where we look at the, the whole system of seeding and, and, and take a serious look at it and the rankings as well, maybe with a view to changing it. Uh, Phil continues, perhaps the matches from the last 16 onwards, or possibly earlier, could be best of 11. 
Yeah, I, d- I don't mind best of nines, actually. I think they're almost a novelty now, so I think that's about right, to be honest. Your prophet- he continues, your prophetic dream about the Crucible final was intriguing. Fully enough, the day before I listened to that episode, I'd been idly thinking ahead to the Crucible and actually thought Murphy could be a dark horse. He's not had a great season, but on the other hand, his game seems in reasonable shape, at least in patches, and he's definitely a momentum player. If he gets on a roll, he could find himself in the latter stages. Interestingly, if I've got this right, his strike rate in Crucible semi-finals, he's played 5-1-4, which suggests he's hard to stop when he gets going. Well, of course, the one he lost uh, was to Mark Selby, 17-16, wasn't it? So, you know, he, he nearly won that one as well. Uh, he says, it also made me think about what would be the dream final this season. The obvious choice is O'Sullivan v Trump, but this will be impossible as they will likely be seeded two and three and in the same half of the draw. That being the case, who wouldn't want to see an O'Sullivan-Selby final? Their rivalry is arguably the most fascinating the game has ever seen. And their clashes in the 2014 final and 2020 semi are two of the most significant in the recent history of the game. I wonder what other listeners would like to see as their dream final in the upcoming World Championship. Anyway, I've gone on far too long, so I bid you farewell. Well, thank you. Well, yeah, do let us know, dream finals. I think uh, Selby's coming back into a bit of form. I mean, the Championship League, he won Group 3. You know, you can't hold great store by that, except to say he had eight centuries in, a, in eight matches. You know, that's a hell of a lot, really. They're only best of fives. He did play well. And, you know, it's the season's longer. Maybe players have their little point in the season where they start playing well. Maybe this is his. We'll see, obviously... At the Welsh Open and going forward. Um, but, uh, thank you for that. And yes, do, uh, let us know you'd like to see in the final. It's coming up, uh, of course, round the corner. Uh, in, uh, well, quite, not, not too long. Now, uh, Benjamin has written in here. Uh, I very much enjoyed your steady run of smaller episodes of late sprinkled in between your regular ones. Judging by some of the other correspondents you received, I'm not the only one. So please continue wherever you can. That aside, I've complete, I have a completely pointless and hypothetical question about who would be considered the player of the season if the following two strings of events would unfold. So we're back to this again. Now, some people would say, why didn't you read this one out earlier? But I like to sort of um, mix it up. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the reason, yeah. Anyway, Benjamin, Benjamin says, number one. So, okay, so these are the events that he's... Um, hypothetical events. Okay, well, the first one's not going to happen because he says, number one, Judd Trump would win the Welsh Open. He's not in that. Anyway, the Players' Championship, the World Open and the Tour Championship, but doesn't win the World Championship. O'Sullivan, on the other hand, would have all the early exits in the aforementioned tournaments, but completes the treble uh, by winning the eighth World Championship. An argument can easily be made for Trump because he'd be bettering his own record by becoming the only player to ever win eight ranking titles in a single campaign, while the Achilles heel of not landing any of the three majors. Equally, it would be quite astonishing for any player of this era of the game to land the three big ones in a single season, but also with the additional accolade that he would have done it as the oldest player in all three of those. And it would be almost easy to forget he won the Shanghai Masters for the fourth consecutive time. But in comparison to Judd, he would have handed, he would have landed less than half the ranking titles. In my view, it's hard to argue for it not to be Ronnie, but I hold your opinion in high esteem and would enjoy to hear your thoughts on it. Okay, so we've, we've gone from who's the player of the season to who would be the player of the season if X, Y and Z happened, which is perfectly fine. I, th- I tend to agree. I think if Ronnie won an eighth world title in the season where he'd won an eighth Masters and, and UK, then he would, he'd have to be the player of the season, wouldn't he? He just would. I, I just don't, I don't see any argument against that. Um, but uh, the, I mean, we're all guilty of it, me as much as anybody, but you can, not, not everything has to be boiled down to who's the best. You can actually admire 
lots of different people. Ronnie O'Sullivan is the greatest player ever. I think most people agree with that. But he's played 30 times at the World Championship and 23 times he's not won it. So on 23 occasions, someone was better than him. He's the best at his best, but he's not always at his best. Sometimes people are better than him. Um, that's a fact. So not everything has to be about, oh, there's only one um, answer. You know, you can, you can just sort of admire achievement in general. And no doubt, Judd and Ronnie this season are the two standout players and... We like to think they're on some sort of collision course at the Crucible. We'll see. But, you know, at the moment, they're both doing great things and, and should both be sort of, you know, applauded and congratulated for that. Now, of course, Kyron Wilson had a maximum this week at the uh, Championship League. And uh, Craig has written in about this, uh, uh, well, partly about it. He says, good afternoon. I hope you're well. You too, Craig. He says, I just got home and flicked the YouTube on and watched highlights of Kyron's maximum. In it, you mentioned a song that Alex Higgins recorded about 147s. My interest peaked. I found myself down a rabbit hole, starting with the song you mentioned. Awful, but I loved it. Now, this song was uh, 147, That's My Idea of Heaven, that's what it was called. Alex Higgins released, I think, in 1983. He says, this was followed by his other tune, Life's in the Pocket. What a banger. If this was only available on the jukebox at my local, uh, if only this was available on my jukebox at my local, sure, they'd love me down there. Both songs here have a listen. They found them on YouTube. Now, I did a whole episode... um, on Snooker's sort of musical past back in, I'm going to say September 2022. Around then, if you go, if you go back, um, you'll find it. It's all, they're all there on the, on the, on the website. But, um, he continues, I then found myself listening to Georgie Fame's Hurricane and I've ended up buying, buying a seven inch single copy on eBay. My fiance and I's mortgage is going up from next month. We're meant to be keeping things tight this month, but I couldn't resist splashing out. If she gets the hump, I'm blaming you. Well, <laughs> that's, good. that's very good of you. Um, yes, I, like I said, I, I, Life's in the Pocket's a great song. Um, I'm not sure Alex was blessed with the best singing voice, but he did his best on it. And, uh, yeah, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, it's, as I say, it's there. And I think we've got one more this week. I say this week. We could, you know, it's like the Wogan show. This is every, every other day it's on. Um, but uh, it's from... Uh, where is it from? Cav... Uh, in Ipswich so this is uh, about C. Joel Wee in, in particular <clears throat> he says it's Saturday morning and the first text message of the day was from a friend simply saying there's still time to fly out there what he meant of course with no further explanation required and only half joking was, was that there's still time for us to get from Suffolk to Berlin to watch the final weekend of the German Masters we didn't go not least because we had no tickets but the anticipation of the closing stages was high there were two intriguing semi-finals and the possibility of a Wilson-Trump final. However, the thing that interested me was the resurgence of C. Jawi. Like countless others, I was captivated by C and his stellar performances at the Crucible last year. My interest in that tournament was particularly heightened as I had already attended the World Championship qualifiers on Judgment Day only two weeks earlier with my brother. More about that experience in a future email. Luger Bissell was obviously a worthy world champion, but it was C's fearless, high-octane, death-or-glory style... More than, more than his eventual capitulation to Purcell that I remember most from that fabulous tournament. I remember at the time enthusing to work colleagues about this young Chinese player and I found myself paraphrasing the words of the legendary BBC snooker presenter David Vine when he was describing Stephen Hendry in his first Crucible appearance. Vine said of Hendry something like, he looks like a boy of 12, but he plays like a master. Those words were completely appropriate for C2, moreover because at the time... He had a reasonable chance of being the youngest ever world champion and thus usurping.
Hendry's record. Watching C do so well in Germany this week revived all those marvellous memories from last April anew. Serendipitously, I was working in Sheffield during the World Championship quarterfinals last year, but unfortunately tickets were sold out when I inquired prior to the tournament. Nonetheless, I was just excited to be in the still city in the middle of the, this festival of snooker. As soon as I arrived in Sheffield, thinking positively but with little hope, I headed to the Crucible to check for any last-minute returns for the evening matches. I can't remember the last time I was so nervous as I watched the lady at the box office check her computer screen, wondering what she would say. To my amazement, there was one remaining ticket for the final session of the C. McGill quarterfinal, starting in less than two hours' time. My perseverance had paid off and was rewarded with a tense finish, culminating in C winning the decider around midnight. And so... All of that crucible euphoria came flooding back this week. In the end, we all know what happened in that semi-final in Sheffield. This time in Berlin, C comfortably triumphed over Wilson, but not unexpectedly faltered against the shark-like predator Trump in the final. None of us know what C will go on to achieve in his career, but what I do know is that he is a special talent. His flair brings joy to millions of fans around the world, and the snooker has a bright future if there are players like C coming through. Well, thank you, Cab. What a lovely email that is. And yeah, it's good to see him again. He, he, there's a star quality about him, definitely. There's something about him, as I say, strikes the ball really, really well. And, and he's got confidence, definitely. He's got, he's got a sort of a little sort of smile at times, which sort of almost is letting you know how good he knows he is or could be, maybe. Um, I like all of that. And, you know, let's, uh, let's hope he's at the crucible. I mean, he, he's probably going to more than likely have to qualify now. Let's hope he gets through. Because, you know, it's a great story last year and it would be great to, to think that he's in the mix and in the, in the draw again this year. Um, so let's hope he gets through. Of course, that'll be coming up. You mentioned Judgment Day. I'm sure, uh, we'll be back with that again, but, um, that'll all be coming around the corner in a couple of months time. But a lot, lot to look forward to before then, not least the Welsh Open next week. Um, and we must, uh, must mention this tournament because it's now the third longest running ranking event. In the sport after the World Championship, the UK Championship, 1992. It's worth looking at the origins of the Welsh Open, actually, while we've, while we've got a minute, um, because it came, it came about um, because back in the day, and, and we often look back, I know, but if you go back 30-odd years, 40 years, regional television was a real powerhouse in the UK. It's something that's changed now. It's very homogenised on the main channels but certainly ITV, it was all regions. Um, each region had its own company that ran, you know, the television in that region. And then they would join the network for, you know, programs like Coronation Street and News at 10. But there was a lot of the, the programs were made in different regions. And the BBC also had sort of regional opt-outs. Opt, opt and certainly in the nations, uh, they had their own programming. And there were national championships. And one of the reasons for that was that BBC Scotland would show... Um, action from the, the Scottish Professional Championship. And for years, BBC Wales showed the Welsh Professional Championship. It was, it was for, obviously, just Welsh players and people like Rave Reardon and Doug Mountjoy, Terry Griffiths, later Darren Morgan would, would monopolise it. In fact, Clyde played in it several times. Um, and if you can find any footage of Clyde playing on it, do let me know, because I'd love to see it. Um, but it, what they decided eventually was that, actually, why don't we, if we've got this week of snooker, why don't we actually have all the best players in the world in it. So they made it into a ranking event. And still to this day, BBC Wales, along with Eurosport and Discovery Plus, will be showing the Welsh Open. So that's how it started. And 1992, Stephen Hendry inevitably won the first. Got a lot of great matches there, a lot of great finals. It's a nice slot in the calendar, I think, this sort of 
sort of equidistant between well it's not equidistant it's actually near it's actually nearer the masters but anyway it feels like in in the middle of the masters and the world championship there's other big tournaments around as well there's a real momentum to the season the real energy to the season um and the welsh open fits into that very nicely now you look at recent winners of course it has provided you have to say three kind of surprise winners in a row jordan brown that was completely out of the blue was in lockdown but you know the fact is he still won it joe perry whose form tailed off quite badly but of course you know he's a very established player and then robert milkins i guess you could argue less of a shock i suppose the thing about last year because he won a tournament the year before gibraltar but i suppose the thing about last year was you know he's playing for that bonus prize as well so the 150,000 bonus uh, from bet victor the european series a lot of pressure on him but um he did the business so one of those tournaments you could see again, maybe, and, and Trump's not in it and we don't know yet about O'Sullivan, maybe could be won again by someone who's possibly uh, possibly not, um, you know, as established, maybe a new winner. We'll see. Um, the action all is next week. And uh, anyway, uh, if you're going to Clandindo, let us know how you get on there and, and what the facilities are like. It's a lovely part of the world, really beautiful and great venue, that venue, Cymru. Um, I kind of, <laughs> I do kind of associate it with COVID because we were there when that tour championship got, ca- got cancelled. We all went home um, into the great wide open. But anyway, here we are and we turned a corner because, of course, all the Chinese events went in that time. But now we'll end where we started. They're coming back to the calendar. The calendar's building up. And it looks like it can only sort of build up even more. I think it's going to be very busy next season. Let's talk about the first event being June, you know, not a lot of break from the World Championship. And then on and on and on, it's going to go throughout the year. And that's good. That's what the players said they wanted. And players, I think, have got to be a little bit careful. I already heard a couple of comments about, oh, well, you know, the travelling and so on. You asked for this. You said you wanted more events. There's a lot of money to play for. Not everyone can win it, obviously. But you said you wanted to be busy. You said you wanted more tournaments. So now, if that opportunity is there, it's the time to embrace it. And that maybe goes for everyone else as well. Anyway, that's I'll get out of your way now. But do keep the emails coming in. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Who knows when the next edition will come out? There might be another one today. We don't know. They're coming thick and fast. Some people have said I've got nothing better to do. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, that's it. So check out the other podcasts on the Sports Social Network. And for now, until next time, and who knows when that could be, it's goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.